we'd correctly understand what it is you're talking about to recognize whether or not we really have it in our lives. So guide us in this time. Use it for your glory alone. And help us to be more like Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at a series on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We've come off of chapter 12, got into a little bit of 13 last week. But chapter 12 and 14, for that matter, and really 13, are a rebuke. People don't read it that way. If they're reading 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, they don't bring up that the, this is one big rebuke. And um, tell the man, you're two-thirds the problem, and the woman that she's only one-third. You need to love each other and uh, straighten this thing out and, and not uh, go the wrong direction. But it is what's going on with the Corinthians. He's dealing with a number of issues now concerning spirituals or spiritual gifts. He's trying to point out how they were misusing this God-given gift, supernaturally, instantaneously given. They were not learned. They were not developed. Uh, they did them right on the spot when the gift was given by God. And they were being unloving, as we're going to see here, which involves impatient, unkind, and the way they were treating one another at church. We would never do that, would we? Oh, okay, thank you. I need to make sure I at least got a no out of there. Uh, just chuckles don't work. But as he's realizing that these gifts in the first part of chapter 13 are absolutely worthless without love. And that is not how they're being exercised. Uh, in the first century. That is not how many are claiming to exercise them in the 21st century. Uh, there's a lot of selfishness involved. They must be spirit-led. This is how things are going to be driven. So when he gets into this section, we covered last week the first three verses. I'm going to read them again so that I don't just jump into verse 4. But we're going to look at love being described here in 4 to 7, basically. Let's read 13, 1 to 3 again. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Lots of noise, no usefulness. And it's hypothetical, and it's also hyperbole. Paul is not telling anybody to do this. He's not even saying there's such a thing as an angelic language. He's taking things to an extreme to try to reveal to them what the problem is in that church. So he gets into verse 2. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Again, he's describing something that is impossible for a human being to have. He's describing omniscience in the part, on the part of God to know everything. And he's just going out to an extreme to try to point out, even to that extreme, if I don't have love that we're going to talk about today, I'm nothing. In verse 3, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, which nowhere in Scripture does God ask you to do that, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So we talked about some of those last week. We went into details a lot longer than you could even imagine that I can talk on three little verses. So today will be shorter, Lord willing. More chuckles? No, you have faith. You have the gift of faith, right? That it's possible. But he, after he shares these things and tells them that you, know, you, could, you could use your mouth, you could use your mind, you could use your money to an extreme, and they're useless without love, he describes what he's talking about. And in verse 4, he says, love is patient, love is kind. That's how he starts off. So in the outline I gave you, I want to spend a little bit of time there. You look at these two issues, they're, they're all stated in the indicative. And you know what the indicative is because you loved English in high school, right? It's just a statement of fact. That's all it was. It was a lot simpler than it seemed to be back in high school. They're in the indicative. He's just stating a fact. This is what love is almost all the time. Is that what he's saying? No, this is what love is. If there is no patience or kindness, you're not loving it's that black and white. It's that simple to figure out and to go through. So he explains these first two because I think they kind of give this overall summary. These are two broad facts. If you go back to the um, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, I'm going to give you less and less. Pretty soon I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to have you preach my message to me. How's that? 
We need to learn our Bibles. We need to know where this is coming from. But when you go into the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first facet of one fruit? What's the first thing stated? Love. Joy, peace. What's the fourth one? Patience. Then what? Kindness. So you find love, patience, and kindness all being described in Galatians 5 coming from where? The Holy Spirit. That's what the context is. Walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. These are spiritual issues. These are spiritual gifts. They come from the Holy Spirit. You can't make them up. You can't fake it and pretend you're doing some things, which is a lot of what happens today with people with tongues. There is, there is some ignorance there, but there's a lot of pretending, a lot of hypocrisy where they want to come and they want to present something to you that has no value to you. They're not even following scripture if it's still valid today, where you speak with two or at the most three and always have them interpreted. And if there's no interpreter, you keep silent. That's not what you're seeing today. There's a total misunderstanding, and that's just picking on the one that was being abused the most by the Corinthians. But when he comes in here, he's telling us the love, that general description of the selfless, sacrificial devotion to someone or something. It's provided and motivated by the Holy Spirit alone. That's it. You can't get it any other way. The world doesn't love anything with agape love. They won't do it. It comes from the Holy Spirit. This is the problem when you sing all these love songs especially those from the 50s, some from the 60s, maybe even the 40s. But they, they sing these songs, and you hear them on the radio, and they just, they just bring out those emotions and those feelings and those great old days when I was young, right? But if you listen carefully to the song, they don't have the slightest idea what they're talking about. Their love is superficial. Their love is temporary on some occasions. It, it varies a lot. It's not biblical love. It's not the love that the Holy Spirit produces in each and every believer and what he desires to have happening at all times, especially with the practice of spiritual gifts here. But he just state, makes a statement. Love is patient, present tense. It's just what it does. It's a fact. Patient here literally means long-suffering. We like that word, don't we? We don't like the idea that that's the first thing he says here. Because what does it mean if I have to be long-suffering? I'm suffering. And it's not a short suffering. It's a long-suffering. Another way they put it here is the idea that it's slow to anger. Because the picture of what they're trying to bring up, the anger here is thumos. All right? It's the one bringing out the idea of this delayed um, reaction. It's kind of the slow way that people respond to it. And so when you're looking at it, it means I take time to blow up. It's, it's a delay to wrath. This is what God has right now. You know how we know? The earth is still here. And before you were saved, you were still here. He has anger. There's an anger that's going to be tied in when you look up the word orge. It's going to tie back into the idea of retaliation or revenge. But thumos is kind of a slow burning. It's, it's this idea that, yes, something needs to be done here, but you're just really slow about it. You, you see it, I see it in the animal world. I saw this one monkey uh, with a, had a baby monkey sitting next to it, and the thing's just bouncing all over and climbing all over. Mom, and that was fine. Mom was long-suffering until the monkey, the little baby monkey decided he was going to wander. And they caught it on film where the mom's hardly moving at all, but as soon as the baby gets within, uh, just trying to get out of arm's reach, she just goes, brink, brink. <laughs> grabs a little leg, jerks him back in, this is your boundary. And he just starts climbing all over mom and doing his thing. That's where you stay. But that's what mothers do. They're really good at it most of the time because they love their children. And it's amazing to watch what they put up with it. It goes back to the idea of what God does. And then when we, we see God doing it, we model it perfectly in the church. Long-suffering. You can't rile me. There's nothing you can do to get me upset. On the inside, I'm counting. One, two, three. Then I'm going to reach out and grab you by the foot and jerk you back in. Is that what I'm going to do? 
It's probably not my role in most situations. But if I care, like that mother, I'm going to make sure that you stay within God's boundaries. I'm not going to ignore it when you're wandering. But I am going to be slow with this selfless, sacrificial devotion to you as the Holy Spirit provides it in my life. As we look at this idea, patience is more passive. It's stressing the inward feeling that Vines even brings that out here. It's what love looks like on the inside. Love always waits. It's always hesitant. It's holding back to retaliate or to, I really shouldn't use that word, but to get upset or to get angry about something. So you put up with it, you put up with it, you put up with it. And this is that story I've shared with you before, and I'm, I don't have very many weeks left, so I have to repeat all my stories. But, but this old lady at a wedding walks up, and this girl says, boy, there's times she's talking to her on the side and sitting and saying, I, I don't know, there's times he really just frustrates me. You know, we're just getting married, but frustrates me. And, she, and this older lady says, and she looks at her, she goes, how did you get along with your husband? And she looks at her for a second. She goes, well, I made a list. Ten things. That my, any of those 10 things my husband did, I ignored it. And she goes, well, there's got to be more than 10. She goes, no, it's just, it works like this. When he does something to ignore me, I just say, it's on the list. <laughs> and then he does something to ignore me, it's on the list. There isn't really 10 of them. It's the idea that I love him, and I'm showing this inward patience, this selfless, sacrificial devotion to whatever's coming at me. That's what love does. This is missing today in our world, in case you haven't noticed. It's been missing in unbelievers since there were unbelievers, since the Garden of Eden. What, what, what do Adam and Eve do when they get caught? No, no, they, t- they took the blame. They took the responsibility. They say, God, I, Adam goes, I made her do it. I, I put her up to it. I, I should have done differently. No, they're passing the buck. And when you get down to the devil, who's he pass the buck to? Nobody. There is no buck to pass to. He can't do anything about it. That's why I always say the dog or the cat always gets kicked last because that's the only thing you can do something about. But, but that's how people react to one another. They don't love one another. They are not selflessly, sacrificially devoted to one another unless you have a genuine love from the Holy Spirit. That, that's enough right there. We close in prayer. We could work on that one for a couple of months just to see how we're doing and kind of evaluate. We should have confessionals up here. How many times did you not love this week? Oh, I did 42. Oh, really? Well, my wife, she has a list, a long list. She keeps forgiving me. So we didn't keep track, but over and over and over. I, as I'm going through this, it's convicting to me. I'm asking God, how do I, how do I work on this? Because that's the one I have more trouble with than the second one, the idea of kindness. And when I get around drivers on the road, and I'm going, why do they irritate me so bad? Why is it? I can't do anything unkind because that would be illegal and then I'd get arrested. But, but why is it on the inside do I have this reaction? And I started justifying myself. It's because they're violating the law. Well, that isn't. But then I come back and God goes, yeah, but you're supposed to be long-suffering. But they don't use a turn signal. Do you know that they don't put them in cars anymore? I bet you most of you in this room, when you come down the passing lanes from Lapine heading north and you merge back in, you don't use your turn signal unless you're a type. Okay. Then you are, what are you doing to the other drivers? You're loving them, aren't you? You're not turning it on for you. You're not turning it on and say, oh, this is a reminder to me that I have to move over. Oh, you're doing it for you? Okay. But you're trying to recognize there are other people out there. Besides the fact, it's the law. You know when you come out of a parking lot from a grocery store that you're supposed to stop? I'm just double-checking to make sure the law hasn't changed. And you're supposed to turn on your blinker. Now, if I were to ask that question... That gets a little more hazy, but it's the law. Why am I doing that? Because I could rush out into something and run into somebody really easily, and many of them almost do. And again, my long suffering has to come out as they cut me off. I grew up in California. I know what it's like to 
have to struggle your way through traffic. You have to fight for it. They tell you to merge. People don't know how to merge. You know, I'll throw out one more because it's just, just taking it off my chest. When you're at a stoplight and the kind that, that the green goes and the middle one blinks, the arrow blinks, what do you do? Don't, a, don't answer that. In California, they taught us to ease out into the intersection. Don't go too far. There's another person probably doing the same thing. But you ease out there and you're ready to turn when there's an opportunity. What do people do around me? They sit there. And the other day they did it twice and couldn't get through the light. Did Jack honk his horn? No. I was long-suffering. But anyway, we won't go any further. But, but I need to constantly be aware of the fact that God is in control. I'm not, in, I'm not running the world, even though I try to. This is what gets in the way of being long-suffering. God is running the world, and yet he is long-suffering. If he can do it, what does that say about me? It's, that's not my role to be getting mad at people. I don't honk the horn hardly ever. I, I drew a line there because that draws attention. And now I'm being unkind. But the impatience on the inside, whoa, I'm really good at it. And God is slowly reminding me just the fact that I'm noticing. And you know what God does? I think it's angels in the cars. I don't think it's humans. He sends them to me. How many of you have that kind of, yeah, I knew there were a few of you out there. Whenever I get on the road, guys, I says, okay, guys, go get him. He's not ready for the rapture yet. Go fix him. And so this is what he's trying to describe here, that love is patient. It delays to get angry. And so what I want to describe it as is love has big shoulders. It will take anything from others. Now, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? Where does it come from? Same place the spiritual gift came from. It is a supernatural, instantaneous ability to carry out God's will. It's not me having to go, oh, man, I didn't get enough sleep, or things haven't been going well, I'm under a lot of stress at work, and so I can justify not being long-suffering. It's not how it works. This is the part I think most people are missing, is that you love as a believer supernaturally. It's what God does through us. When we walk by the Spirit, when we cooperate with him, when we change lanes, when he changes lanes, when we stop, when he stops. And this is what I have to picture with these other drivers. It's a much bigger thing where God is telling me, you sit here. I don't want you to turn yet. You go 45 in a 65. Huh? Huh? Because I'm spacing you out according to where I want you to be at a given time. Or better yet, you pray for that person in front of you. I have found, rare, but I have found sometimes people had medical issues. Rare. I had a guy riding my bumper one day, riding my bumper. And I got off thinking I'm getting out of the way and I'm heading toward the hospital. And he just kept riding my bumper. Finally, I pull over and he goes by and I go, I know who that is. And we were going to the same place to the hospital. I pulled in the emergency room, and he goes, so, so sorry, sorry that I, that I was riding your bumper, but I had a guy in here, and I chopped his thumb off in a, in a woodcutter, a wood splitter. He goes, I kind of was tunnel-focused. I was trying to get him in before he bled to death. We couldn't quite get it to stop. What was I? I didn't chew him out. Once I recognized who it was, I kind of went, oh, there's something going on. But it was the idea that I don't know everything. And so it isn't for me to become God and start dictating how people are supposed to act around me because I'm God, right? You should clear the road when you see my car <laughs> and not because I'm doing 90. But he's trying to bring this out. So let me illustrate this. This, this is a good way, and some of you heard this many years ago, but I'll use it again. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was Edwin M. Stanton. Have you heard of him? Okay, you have read about him. Ed, Edwin M. Stanton. He called Lincoln a low, cunning clown. And the original gorilla. What year would this have been, roughly? They're running for office, so you're in the 1860s? Okay. They did it back then, too. 
They just couldn't broadcast it on the internet. He said, it was ridiculous for, this is a guy still speaking, it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla, he would say, when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. This is a guy running against him. Lincoln never responded to the slander, but when as president, he needed a secretary of war and he chose Stanton. But when as president, I'm sorry, when his incredulous friends asked why, Lincoln replied, because he's the best man. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in state, Stanton looked into the coffin and said, through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His animosity was finally broken by Lincoln's long-suffering, non-retaliatory spirit. His patient love wore out. And that might be the case with some of us, as we may not see it now, but we will see it later as we're here, testimonies of people that come to Christ and join the Lord and join us in heaven. But this is the, this is the part where, again, you notice Lincoln said nothing. The idea that I'm holding this on the inside, I am waiting. I am taking, 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 taking. How do you do that? Supernaturally. You have to let the Holy Spirit have control. And it doesn't just all of a sudden go, okay, I've been having a bad day and now I'm going to turn Supernatural. I'm going to rip my shirt open and there's going to be an S for spirit. And I'm going to start acting differently. It's a lifestyle. It's walking by the spirit. It's keeping that relationship where it belongs. I'm spending time in the word. I'm spending time in fellowship with God. I'm keeping short accounts with people when something does go wrong. I'm constantly restoring, restoring, restoring. 1 John 1, 9, that chapter of 1 John is about fellowship. The book of 1 John is about fellowship and getting it right with God and putting it back. We're not talking about you never sinning as a believer, but you will never practice sin as a believer. If necessary, if you're playing around and you're pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, 1 Corinthians, what happened to some of them in chapter 11 who weren't discerning the body rightly, who weren't loving fellow believers the way God expected it? He had some of them weak some of them sick, some of them dead in Christ, where he uses the term they were asleep. Took them home. We think, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. I can live however I want. No, you can't, unless you're not really saved. Then you've got another issue you have to deal with, and that's what God wants to work on, to either draw you to himself or to draw you into a, a relationship as a believer with him that it is vitally connecting with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. So there's the internal side of it. As he summarizes it, he gets down to the external side of it. When he says here, going from the negative of what I don't do to the positive of what I do do, then he says love is kind. This selfless, sacrificial devotion is gentle. It's gracious. It's benevolent. He goes from it being a present indicative, again, um, but an active in with the um, what I'm actively doing as being patient to being middle voice. This is something I'm actually cooperating and carrying out with the Holy Spirit. And again, don't worry about middle voice unless you care. I mean, unless you study that and you want to know. But he's bringing out here that it's stressing outward actions, an active goodwill. It's what love looks like on the outside. Is the kindness that I display in my life. When do I do it? Sunday mornings from 10 to 1? Is that when I get straightened out? Then on Mondays I can live like however I want? No, he's trying to bring out, this is a lifestyle. This is what I do all the time. Someone who is showing kindness is eager to meet the needs of others. They have a, a big shoulders to be patient. They have a big heart to be kind. Where patience will take anything from others, uh, kindness will give anything to others. So you see the, the two he's trying to bounce off of each other, and they're, they're, they're like Oreo cookie. We haven't gotten to the good stuff in between yet, but just the outside cookies, they're two, two pieces of bread, make a sandwich. They, they go together. He's not trying to say, well, you can be patient, but you're not going to be kind. If you don't have one or the other, you don't have any, any of it. You're not loving. 
So I, God convicted me this week, if you're, if you're going to show this impatience toward other drivers, just in your frustration level, my wife doesn't know, but I have been improving. She only hears a little bit. She doesn't hear all of it, of what I really want to say and how I want to teach. I want to open up a driving school. But I want to reinstate capital punishment. When they mess up, wham. You get a SWAT. That's a SWAT. We'll see you at the end of the day. How long do you think I'll keep people in my school? Not very long. Because people don't put up with that anymore. Where, where we grew up, you got spanked by the principal. You got spanked, by, well, you got spanked for, first by the teacher. Sent you to the principal. The principal would spank you. Sent you home and your dad would spank you. Oh, yeah. And if, if it was involved sports or shop, they would spank you. And you never told dad. It just was life in the, in the big city back in the 60s, 50s. That's how they did it. It's missing today. Do I think we ought to go around beating on people? No. But do I think that the spankings need to be reinstituted? Yeah. You're looking at what it's doing to society. They're not teaching them to be patient and kind. They're teaching them to be gods, little gods. Spoiled brats. World's all about me. Give me whatever I want. They're going to open up a driving school. They're going to instill capital punishment to get their way. So Jack's working on this. God's working on me. But you see these two as he opens up, he's trying to give you kind of this overall summary of what's going in. Now he's going to go in and give you some details about it. And so I laid out the outline. I'm going from the description of love as being patient and kind on two extremes here to some distinctions that Paul brings out and tries to remind people. So you have this little sheet. I didn't go there with the first one. You can write down some of that where love is patient, has big shoulders. Love is kind, has a big heart. This is what comes up. And so as you're looking at the third one, as he gets into these details, you can picture this more like a diamond with different prisms. And when light goes into it, it shines out different colors in different directions. But it's all the same diamond. Love is that diamond. The fruit of the Spirit is that individual fruit. I'm curious when you bite into it in the Garden of Eden, if, if it had different flavors to it. If it changed over from strawberry to peach to apricot as you ate it or if God would keep them really distinct the reason I asked that is when we went to Columbia and we got bananas where they went out and they picked the bananas and then when you pick them you chop the whole vine down big vine because you want it to grow back it put out its fruit whoop you what do you call that pruning or whatever you're doing to it and but when he brought them up hung them on the porch and you could go they were candy you could go take them whenever you wanted to they tasted like strawberry and I went that is weird Really good strawberry. I mean, we're not talking about these lousy bananas that they pick green. I'm wondering if they're even green. I don't know what other color they could be. But by the time they get here, they don't taste like anything. You probably ought to use them for um, hockey pucks or, or they probably wouldn't fly very good, but it'd make the game more interesting. Maybe trap shooting, something like that. But when you live in Lapine, having grown up in California even, there were enough fruits that were picked, ripe, and had a flavor to them doesn't exist up here. Sorry. Maybe over in the valley you get some of it, but the fruits change as you come on up in the different climates. The fruit isn't a change in our lives. When God comes to pick something out of us, this is what it should look like. So he gives this long list. He goes in and clarifying, and I think bringing out patience to begin with, all the way down to the, the, the negatives, down to the beginning of verse 6. And he starts laying them out. And he says here, with the one that says not coveting in the outline, that love is not jealous. The opposite of the simple way of saying that, or in a positive way, is love is generous. And so how do I mean that? Look at the definition. It's not envying or seeking equality with others. What does that mean I'm doing? I'm letting go of some things. I rejoice when they... Do well, and that kind of comes down with another one here too, but that's a little different. I'm excited about somebody else succeeding. And I promote it. That's not common in the world today. I don't know if you haven't have ever noticed that. Now you're seeing it creeping in in broad daylight into the Olympics. Where where people act like the whole Olympics was created for them. And they want to be 
put up on the podium. They, they want their hour or their year or their decade of fame. Look at me. Look what I've accomplished. And yet when you get some of them up there, as we shared last week with Sydney Laughlin, I think her name was, and, and you get her setting a record that nobody's ever set with time clocks. And then she, I understand she was part of the four by um, four, yeah, and they also took a goal. Well, who wouldn't use her? She can, if she can run a 52 with 10 hurdles in front of her, what do you think she's going to do when, when there's nothing in her way? But she stands up there and she gives the glory to God. She, she's not jealous about other people. She's not even worried about what they think. She's crediting Jesus Christ with her strength, what he's provided. She's just giving it back. That's all we do. Some of us have a lot more money. Others don't have as much. Some of us have good looks. I mean, you have it or you don't. Some of us, some of us don't. That's why there's old, such thing as old age. Because God, if he thought you had that, he takes it away. And he doesn't just kind of take it away. He destroys it. You know, that's what happens. Sorry, that's what happens. When you don't recognize yourself in the mirror when you get up, you, you've reached a level of sadness. <laughs> but he's working on us to not be jealous. You're, you're looking at movie stars. Man, look at them. Look at all their acclaim. Well, go read about their life. Go follow them for a few years, and you find out why they went into drugs. Why their marriage broke up and then a new one and a new one and a new one. Why their children have nothing to do with them. It destroys them when it's all about them. They can't go out in normal public. They can't go down to the grocery store and buy something without sunglasses and a hat and some kind of hood and whatever else you got to put on. It's a sad life. And yet we get jealous of them. We, we, we want that. And it's like, no, you don't want that. Why do you want that? Because I want the attention. And a lot of that maybe is because you didn't get it at home. I had a mother that loved me to death. I had a mother that was the epitome of patience. We'd go harass her. We would do stuff. We'd go come walk home from school at lunchtime, and we'd shoot corn across the table, my brother Brent and I, and, and see if we could get it into each other's mouth <laughs> with a spoon. And sometimes it took soup with it, and it ended up all over the table. My mom, all she did is reach out, grab her leg, boom. Extreme patience because she loved us. But she also had kindness. My mom's favorite day of the year was Christmas. I shouldn't go off into all that, but she was as kind as could be. Super generous. It's what God wants us to be doing. She couldn't wait to give away. And there was nothing she wouldn't take from us. We, we could not make her, um, my sister can make her mad, but we could not make her mad in the same way as boys. And so you're wrestling with this whole thing. And it's, it's the quality of not envying or seeking equality. No unhealthy competition or greed. We don't have that in the church. You don't wish you had something somebody else had. Well, if I had their kind of money. You don't want their kind of money. That comes with great responsibility. And accountability. God will ask what you did with it. Oh, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be a billionaire today. A millionaire is nothing anymore. I want to be a billionaire. No, you don't. Don't long to be rich, according to 1 Timothy 6. It leads to ruin. We keep going back to Scripture. We keep trying to understand what does God want us to teach, and the Holy Spirit is our teacher as we read, and we take it in, and we get to know it better and better. And it's a, it's a personal Bible school between us and God as we just give him the time to let it sink in. We memorize it, even when we're old. I was working on a verse the other day. I said, I got to teach people or tell people they ought to be doing this. I guess I ought to make sure if I can still do it. But it was just a verse that stood out. I was reading in the Psalms, and I go, that'd be a good one to lock down. But if you don't use it, if you're not constantly looking for opportunities to share it with somebody else, it fades away. But this idea of jealousy is the first one. He goes in, secondly, love does not brag. And I went from love is patient with big shoulders to love is kind with a big heart. Love does not brag. It does not have a big mouth. This is the outward one. Humble fits both of these, this one and the next one. But this one's describing those who, 
uh, who are loving do not boast. They do not exaggerate. They do not sound their own praises. It is not puffed up or anxious to impress anybody. I'd refer to these with the tongues they were struggling with in the church. Those were spiritual show-offs. They were trying to get attention doing something that wasn't even of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't behind it, just like much of what goes on today. And so he goes with this outward side, then he goes to the inward side. Love doesn't have a big mouth, but it also doesn't have a big head. This is the idea, it's not arrogant. It's humble on the inside. It's not inflated with pride and vanity, does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Somebody that stands out in scripture this way is John the Baptist. What did he say in John 3.30? He had a following. He was the deal. Man, head east and John the Baptist is running the show. And what did he say in chapter 3 of John, verse 30? He must increase. I must decrease. When Christ came along six months younger than him and a ministry that was younger than his ministry. When he came along, he knew who he was. And he was yielding. He couldn't wait for him to take over. I don't think we're going to have that problem at the rapture. I don't think there's going to be any one of us true believers that are going to show up there and all of a sudden we go, uh, Jesus, may I have your right side? May I have your left side like the disciples did early on? That's not going to happen. And the reason why? Because you find them in glorified justified in your standing before God, sanctified in your walk with God, and glorified physically, spirit, soul, body. Your body will finally be made new. You're justified in your standing. You're being sanctified in your lifestyle, but you're going to be glorified. There'll be nothing left for you to be even tempted to get involved in. You will be focused on Jesus Christ. Your goal there, and it should be presently on earth, is to not be arrogant, not be inflated with or having inflated ideas of your own importance. Then he says it does not act unbecomingly. These are all negatives. It's not jealous, not bragging, not arrogant, not acting unbecomingly. This is kind of a hard one for us to grasp, and yet it's common. This person is not rude. They're courteous. Behaves properly with respect of others, with good manners. And I'm trying to keep these simple and short because I'll run out of time. But this individual is polished in the way they respond. These kind of people end up where? What, what roles do they get in our world? Okay, what kind of leaders? Where do you put somebody in here who's polished, who's, who's not rude, they're courteous? I thought the first thing you would say would be greeters at the door. No, they're not the primary one I was thinking of, but that's what fits. Do you want somebody at the door, the, you, the guest, the new person walks up and they go, what are you, what are you wearing? <laughs> Do you understand today is blue Sunday? We're all wearing coordinated colors of blue and you came in in red. We're going to have to sit you in the back. Here's the color chart for next week. Is that, how would people feel? That's what they were doing with the rich and the poor. The rich would walk in all gaudy with all this stuff on them, and, and they'd say, oh, you come sit up in this special seat. And then the poor man would enter in. And if you got a seat at all, it would be at somebody's footstool. Love doesn't act like that. It's, the word I put in the middle here is it's considerate of others. It's not disdainful. It doesn't look down on people. It doesn't act that way. In the typical jobs, you will not get a job if, unless you are polished in the area of politics, except that our world's changing. You can now be rude. If they're conservative, if they're a Christian, if, if they come in with a flag on them, if there's, some, there's something, you can be rude at that now. So that they're even losing it. But they used to put on this front that people would feel really comfortable around them because they're polished. They didn't act rude. They, they took you in and made things work the best they could. This is what Christians are supposed to be like all the time. Again, another negative, it does not seek its own. It's unselfish. Um, not self-seeking or covetous does not pursue, strive for, or demand personal gain. 
The simple way we put this one today is they give up their own rights. I don't have any rights. How are we doing so far? I got convicted on patience. Have you been convicted on something? Okay, you're all being very humble. All very patient. What do you want to do to me? No, don't answer that question. I don't have enough time. But he's trying to bring out here unselfish. We, we can look at that and go, well, that's, that's a given. Don't you love people that are selfish? Don't you love little children in the grocery store that are selfish? And the parents just let them run all over the place and grab whatever they want out of your cart. Maybe they get into your purse. Good thing I don't have a purse. I got rid of that a long time ago. We don't like selfishness. Why do we practice it at times? And what you can tell is that little thing, what, what I'm doing when I'm driving, that, that little feeling, sometimes big feeling, that kind of rears its ugly head, and you're supposed to take a hammer and whack it. No, I'm not going there. Now, for me, I may never have to or be able to drive again because it, it just doesn't work for me. Or I really walk by the Spirit, and I let him control. And I start praying for those people. I've done that in the past. God's helped me with this a number of times. I used to get up, and if it was a woman or a man, I would pretend it was one of my parents in the car. And the first thing I asked myself is, how would I treat my mom if she was driving like that? Ah, ah, ah. Is that how I treat her? I'm right here, Mom. Just following. Not too close. That's also against the law. Because it's selfish. But I'm trying to work at this whole thing of putting myself out to give out, not to take in. These are all negatives. He says, love is not provoked. Oh, man, this one doesn't work well for me. It's good-tempered. It's not exasperated or irritated. It's not touchy or excited to anger. Literally, it has the idea of not being sharp. Don't you love to run into sharp things in the night? I got a dresser. I love the dresser. We got it at a secondhand store or something like that. But I, I love it, except for one thing. The top is sticks out and it's pointy. I want to take a jigsaw and I want to go. It's kind of a crown molding kind of a look. It probably wouldn't look good if I did that. But it's pointy. It's sharp. It's, it's the idea. It provokes me. And so do I, what do I do in the dark now as I'm stumbling around, getting up in the middle of the night? I reach for one thing, the corner of the dresser. No, not a flashlight. She doesn't sleep enough right now. But I reach for one thing. That's the first thing I want to find. Where are you? <laughs> and I get a hold of it. You, if you looked at my arm, bruise, 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 bruise. Because what I do, once I use the restroom and I'm coming back out, I forget you got to look for the sharp point coming and going. Wham, wham. Oh, man. We don't like people like that. We don't like people that poke us. So why do we act that way? Why do we act like little pokers to people? We, we provoke them because we're exasperated. We're irritated. We always have a good excuse. We don't just flippantly go out and just do something. They earned it. Yeah, or they did it first, that would work. But he's laying this out here. That's not how Jesus acted. That's not how the Holy Spirit leads us. So if we're provoking or if we are provoked, then we have strayed off of walking or keeping in step with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. He goes into this third or this next one here. It does not take into account a wrong. This is another fun one. It's very forgiving. Does not record injuries. No memory of harm done. Not resentful erases all debts. My mom never came back, just to give you a good example. She never came back to me and said, okay, you owe me. Here's all the hours I had to clean, by, clean up after you and your brother when you shot that corn across the table. It's like, mom, stop serving soup with corn in it. No brainer. My mom didn't come back. That was never even brought up. My mom just kept giving and giving and giving. She wanted to know what your needs were. When it came to Christmas, she wanted a list of everybody else. When you asked her what she needed, oh, I don't need anything. 
This is what believers are like because it comes from the inside. They, they forgive. They don't have some list on a chalkboard. They aren't holding grudges of what other people have done. Can't wait to pay them back. See, that's what was going on in the Corinthian church in chapter 11. That's why some of them were weak and sick and dead because they weren't cooperating with the spirit. And God said, you're better off home and the church is better off without you being down here. Come on. But the problem is when you get there, what's the first thing he says to you? So what are you doing here so early? Not that he didn't know how you got there, but it's like, what have you done to earn this early retirement from planet earth? You want to stay until your work's done, wherever that may be. But you want to be the one who is not keeping this record. You're erasing all debts. I had people, I had one guy that stabbed me in the back numerous times in previous church ministries. Every time I saw him, it was in group setting. And every time in a group setting, he'd walk up to me quickly and shake my hand in front of other people. But behind the scenes, he was just thrashing me with things he was saying about me and things he was writing about me. And I found out, what do you think I did when he walked up to shake my hand? You lousy, hypocritical, um, whatever. It was the simple thing to do was just shake his hand and to pray for him silently because I felt sorry for him. That's what Abraham Lincoln was doing. Somebody who's mistreating me to where I want to keep a grudge of it, they're the ones who have the problem, not me. Now, if I'm sinning or doing something wrong and it needs to be straightened out, that's not what we're talking about. You go and reprove them in private, and your goal is to win your brother. But in this case, it's having the situation which you're going to have where people are going to hurt you. And the last negative he throws in, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It's very positive in that it's not happy about any sin. Never says it serves you right. It will quickly cover an embarrassment and never passes on gossip in a negative way to take somebody down. What reminded me of this, when I was a teenager, I was taught a verse or read it. I don't remember how it came across, but in Proverbs 24, 17, it said, rejoice not when your enemy stumbles. I had just learned that. And this guy that was not being nice to me at church, he was a man. I don't know why he didn't like me, but he didn't like me. And I happened to be standing by the Sunday school building in California, of all places, all those fruits and nuts down there. But I stand there, and he started going up the stairs, the concrete stairs, the kind of free-floating ones. And he took two steps and whack right on his face. And guess what God brought to my mind? That verse. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they, he got right back up. He was embarrassed bad. But I'm, I couldn't, he's right in front of me when he does it. And he goes down, he sees me, he gets up, and he just goes on up the stairs. But inside, I had a decision to make. It could have been, yes, do it again, God. Or it needed to be Proverbs 24, 17. Don't rejoice when your enemy stumbles. And if you read verse 18, which I should do for you, because you want to get the whole thing in there. If they really have done something horrible, whose job is it to deal with them? God's. Verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, New American Standard, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and he turn away his anger from him. Oh, no. If something's really deserved on his part and I become the mocker, I become the one who's celebrating and um, rejoicing in this unrighteousness and it could be other kinds of sin, but it, it stands out here that I'm not happy about that. Anybody around me who's sinning is somebody that I need to be praying for and helping, not rejoicing over. So he goes into the positive. He takes it from these um, negative distinctions and now I'm really, I'm, I thought it was going to go really short. It never does. But we can rattle through these. He goes into these five positive statements here. And I think the ones we just covered tie in with the idea of being patient, showing patience. The last group here, and I put that in your bulletins. Yeah, sort of, but you have to pick up on that. Positive is the idea of being kind. So love rejoices with the truth. They become a cheerleader. They're glad when truth wins out. They're the first one to cheer over a victory and celebrate sincere service. What they're after is God's success. That's what matters. So if you have somebody that does something well, it doesn't matter if it's your worst enemy or your closest friend. You celebrate. You encourage them. God is working on me with that. 
My dad was a quiet type. I've shared a lot of that with you in the past. My dad would not have tolerated one little piece of corn even getting on the spoon. That was death. If my dad was at home, you did not shoot corn across the table. All right, we won't go into any more of that. But, but it's very clear. But my dad was cold in a lot of ways. He'd been raised that way. He didn't know how to respond. I always shared with you that I, I had to teach my dad how to hug. Because when you went to hug him, which I learned I needed to do, 19, 20 years old, I went up to him to hug him, and my dad was like a tree. He could not even respond. He didn't push me away, but he didn't know how to respond. In the latter years, so people come to me, and they go, how come you're kind of standoffish? I go, well, I'm a whole lot better than what I should be. All I got reactions from my dad were abusive and were verbal put-downs. It wasn't, and I don't mean all the time in a bad way, but it was just that's all I got. I never got praised. I I never got recognized in some way until my dad got older. But I learned from the scriptures that's not my job. My job isn't to hold a grudge against him. My job is to love him, and I always went around bragging about my dad. I don't think, apart from sharing general things here, if you've ever heard me talk about my dad, I'd bring up something that I was impressed with. Very intelligent man, hardworking man in so many ways. But I learned it wrong. And I didn't pass it on perfectly to my children. Better than my dad, but I have a long ways to go. So when I watch my children doing that, when I watch them, and I'm just thinking, Tim's probably watching at home right now. When I see him pick up his daughter yesterday, after she hurt herself, and I see the sympathy, and I see him take time with her and, and play with her. She loves him, loves him. Just to pick an example, I, I rejoice. It wasn't as common for me, but it made me who I am. It's not a bad thing to look back on. A lot of us hold that grudge against our parents. A lot of us here don't want to rejoice in the truth of what's going on. My dad taught me things that I don't think I would have learned any other way. I needed it a lot tighter and a lot stronger. And so God used him, and I thank God for that. But the believer who's loving with this kindness he's showing rejoices with the truth, and then he gives you four of them in a row. He bears all things. He is loyal. This word, the stem of this word comes from the word roof. Stege is a roof, and this is a form of that word put into a, a verb, and it's talking about the idea that it, like a roof, is protective. It's overlooking and forgiving all offenses. It doesn't stand back when you see the lightning bolt coming down to hit somebody, it covers them. It doesn't rejoice when they fail. But love covers a multitude of sins. This is the idea here of bearing that up. It believes all things, and the idea of being faithful here, using a form of the word pistos, it always has confidence without suspicion. It always gives credit to God. That's who they're trusting in. That's who the believer rests in. It doesn't matter what comes into your life. Whatever the trial is, it doesn't matter. I think, looking back, my dad prepared me for cancer. I don't think I had a bad day with cancer. Now, maybe my wife caught me once in a while with something, but I took it from the very beginning as this is a, I would have been, won the lottery, you heard me share that term, and God had picked me to have what I have and to go through what I've gone through for 11 years and to keep me alive because of what they've been able to do. I just feel like a statue where they're kind of, they use the hammer and the chisel, take a little chunk off here, take a little chunk off there. But it's not the physical chunk because I'm gaining weight. I'd rather do it that way. But it's the spiritual things where God is working to remove that. But to use it and realize I'm sitting by people who are just devastated that they have cancer or their life come to an end where we walk, one lady watch her come in in a wheelchair with a hood over, she wouldn't talk to anybody. And when she was done with treatments, because we were there for two and a half months at one time, she was standing up, ringing this bell that says you made it through your, all your treatments with a big smile on her face. That's how we're supposed to be as believers. We are supposed to be bearing all things, believing all things. We're ultimately trusting God. He helps us to love others in the process. This is how we show kindness because we know what's coming. It doesn't matter what comes at us. It matters who God is. And so he hopes all things, trusting, always expecting the best. Hope is a 
Confident expectation in the New Testament, I've taught you that many times. It always anticipates what's, what's best, even in failure. This is the part I don't think we're getting today. Oh, everything went wrong. No, it didn't. It went wrong according to your agenda because of what you were expecting, because of what you would have picked. But who's in charge? Do you understand your life is a vapor? I could get all worked up in my cancer. Here's what it did to me. Here's how it limited me. Here's what it cost me. And all these things are going on instead of realizing the other way around. Do you understand what's coming when Christ returns? Do you understand I will get a new body that won't be dealing with any of that stuff anymore? Why do I wait to rejoice 11 years later? Why can't I rejoice on day one? Why can't I say, okay, God, here we go. I didn't do it. You picked it. So I don't even have to blame myself, which is how I was kind of raised. Oh, I'm a bad boy. I'm a bad boy. God is the one doing it. I can hope and expect the best without any fear of the future. Enduring all things, hupomeno, to persevere, to remain firm under trials and various pressures. That's how I can live. There is no temptation taking me, but such as is common to man. God won't allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able. Where's that found? A couple more chapters back, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And he's explaining to them, they're wrestling. You read the book of 1 Corinthians, just sit down with it. Go take your Bible and go find some place and read through the whole book, and you'll see the flavor of God loving the Corinthians and yet pointing out what needs to be fixed because it was detrimental to them. That's not happening today. Children are told you can do whatever you want, and they don't point out the dangers. They don't point out the fall of the cliff that's coming because, well, you want to be this or you want to be that, and you want this sin in your life or that sin in your life. They don't warn them about what's coming. I'll be happy at the moment. It will destroy you. Sin always leads to death. And so he comes down at the end here. As you remain firm under trials and various pressures, you're holding up, you're bearing under. Love never fails. It's eternal. It never comes to an end. What was going to happen to the spiritual gifts? They're going to go away. And I've talked about that. We'll talk more about that when we get into chapter 14. I think they were used in the first century. I think they're gone. And that's not popular today. You can almost find no one. I can name one man that pointed that out to me and went to Scripture to help me understand. It's not common. Well, if the gifts are all here today, where are they? Knowledge, faith, wisdom, prophesying. Where are they? Supernaturally given to where they just happen. Boom, boom, boom. There they are. Where are they today? Hebrews 2.4 says... Past tense, God used them. We go, oh, no, we don't have any spiritual gifts now. What are we going to do? Guess who he left? The Holy Spirit. Guess what he gave you that many of those gifts supplied? His word. You have all you need for life and godliness. What are we doing with it? How important is God's word to us? It's eternal. You're going to get up there, and there may be a Bible on a coffee table in the New Jerusalem, and it won't have dust on it. And I'm just trying to illustrate. I don't know how he's going to do that. We've got to take God seriously and let him love through us. Walk by the Spirit. Turn away from evil. Pursue righteousness. Obey him, even when they drive 45. One lady almost came to a stop on 97 one time in front of me. That one, I got verbal. That one, I turned my horn on. I thought somebody's going to drive up behind me and run right into me. She was on something. Summertime, windows are all open, and she's going, la, la, la. She looks in the mirror, and she goes, ah, la, la. She's looking right at me. I mean, I'm right there. We're stopped right behind each other. I'm going, lady, there's something wrong with you. That was when God started working on me to say, stop reacting to other people's sin. Start leading with God's love. That's what he's after. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you. You demonstrated true love in the giving of your son on the cross. All of these characteristics we just talked about were proven, demonstrated, lived out, 
validated by your son. You're still doing that today. You're long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. May that be our attitude toward Lapine and Central Oregon and Oregon itself. Our leaders who are practicing evil and running away from you, Father, may we pray for them. May we not get irritated and touchy, not be provoked. May we make a difference in this world with the gospel that can change a heart. May we trust you that you're going to do what's best, even when it's really, really hard. And may you alone receive the glory. I thank you in Jesus' name.